Things never seem to go well in Somalia. There's a weak central government in Mogadishu, a terrible famine. Islamic militants control much of the country, and, of course, there are the pirates who operate freely off its coast. Some countries, especially the United States, have been stepping up their military involvement in Somalia. And joining me now to discuss who is intervening in Somalia and why is Jeremy Scahill, a staff writer for The Nation. Jeremy, it's always a pleasure to speak with you. Welcome to our show for today's second underreported segment. Thanks for having me back. Weren't you in Somalia fairly recently? Yeah, I was in Somalia over the summer. Um, and when I was there, you know, this was it was right before um, news of the famine really became a major story in the U.S. or elsewhere in the world. And, of course, now it's a non-story again. Um, but when I was there, the focus was very much on, uh, on the fighting between the al-Shabaab militants that you described and the U.S.-backed um, and funded African Union peacekeeping force that primarily is composed of Ugandan and Burundian Forces, and then there's some CIA people and some U.S. special ops people that come in and out of the country. So, you know, there's a, there's a guerrilla war going on, and the backdrop of it is the famine that you described um, and, the, and, and the sort of militarization of the Horn of Africa that, of course, the United States is very deeply involved with, and, and also North Africa, you have Libya. So, you know, it's a, it's a very volatile region of the world right now, and it, does, it doesn't get nearly the attention it deserves, either in the counterterrorism community or, quite frankly, in the journalist community either. So is it really as dire as I made it sound in my introduction? Yeah. What do yeah. people I mean, there tell uh, you about what's happening? Do they feel things are getting any better or worse? Well, look, I mean, Somalia, Somalia hasn't, had, hasn't had an updated currency uh, since 1991 uh, when they had their last stable government, uh, the, the dictatorship of Siad Barre. Uh, that government was overthrown, of course, by a, a sort of network of warlords led by Mohammed Farah Idid. And, and then all through... Uh, the 1990s and the early 2000s, Somalia was just utterly destroyed. This beautiful city of Mogadishu with its gorgeous Italian architecture and cathedrals was just completely destroyed by these, these you know, ruthless warlords. Then 9-11 happens, and the, and the Bush folks, uh, you know, put Somalia on an early list of countries to intervene in because there were a handful of al-Qaeda people in the country, um, including the alleged uh, bombers of the U.S. embassies in, uh, in uh, Nairobi and uh, in Nairobi, Kenya, and in, in Tanzania. And, you know, luckily, or fortunately, I think the U.S. just wisely decided not to go into Somalia militarily. We remember what happened with Black Hawk Down. But instead, Leonard, what they do is, is, is the CIA backs a network of warlords to hunt down, you know, these dozen or so al-Qaeda people. And the warlords take that as a, uh, as a badge of legitimacy from the U.S. government, and they, they just start acting like death squads. And that sort of encouraged the, the rising up of an Islamic movement called the Islamic Courts Movement, that actually ended up bringing stability for the first time in 16 years um, to Mogadishu in 2006. Uh, the Bush administration would only let that government last six months. They go in, they overthrow the Islamic Courts Union, and lo and behold, al-Qaeda steps in and takes advantage of the situation and enters a country that they never could penetrate before because clan politics dictate that foreigners aren't going to be in charge of anything in Somalia. And all of a sudden today we have Shabab, this group with very close links to al-Qaeda, becoming the sort of vanguard against crusades and imperialism and, and you know, anti-Islamic Western, you know, governments or puppets like Uganda. And so, so that, that's the situation where we are today, and most people are caught in the middle of it. Most people are, are, have nothing to do with warlords, have nothing to do with Shabab, don't want anything to do with foreign peacekeepers, and they're struggling to feed their family. And, and the famine has just compounded it. And, and, I mean, Somalia is an absolute 
mess, and 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 the the children and the elderly and women are suffering the most. I've I've never ever in my in all my years of reporting from crisis zones seen anything worse than than the situation the average person in Somalia faces today. It's just horrifying. So what about Al Shabaab? Uh, is their ideology the same as Al Qaeda? Are they an arm of Al Qaeda? Uh, well, are, or yeah, are we still talking question. about something that is more like? Uh, the the warlord uh, philosophy uh, that uh, that was a, a, a basic part of Somalia over the years, right? So the so the groups that rose up and sort of expelled the warlords was this, this coalition of what were called Islamic courts. There were there were twelve of them in all, and and they they were exactly that. They were courts. They brought some semblance of a justice system to an utterly lawless society. And Somalia is a is a one hundred percent Muslim country, and so it was a, you know it was a a logical way to, to sort of envision a stabilization program. And some of those 12 courts were very moderate. In, in, in fact, the, the current president of Somalia, who's backed by the United States, was the head of one of those courts and was, in fact, the head of the government that the U.S. overthrew with Ethiopian support in 2006. But the reason I, I, I go to trouble to, to say that is because there was a 13th entity within that movement called al-Shabaab, and it was a sort of radical group of, of, of young fighters that were organized um, by a former warlord turned Islamic leader and the idea was that they were going to sort of be this militant armed wing that would defend the Islamic revolution against any outside intervention. And they had no real prominence within Somalia's clan politics. When the government of the Islamic Courts Union was overthrown, the Shabaab declared their former allies who, from the Islamic Courts to be apostates and anti-Islam and puppets of the West. And they then tapped into the, the sentiment of Somalis who wanted an end to the warlords and didn't want any more foreign intervention. And they started conquering territory. And they did so with the support and backing of some very wise and powerful al-Qaeda commanders who were veterans of the Mujahideen War in Afghanistan, who had conducted spectacular attacks, who had access to funding through al-Qaeda's funding network. They were, getting, um, they were generating revenue from Sierra Leone and the, the blood diamond trade. They were getting protection from Charles Taylor in Liberia, and they had the support of Ayman Zawahiri, the number two guy in al-Qaeda, and Osama bin Laden, who had long wanted to be there. So is there a connection between Shabab and al-Qaeda? Absolutely. Is al-Qaeda running al-Shabaab? No. Al-Shabaab is primarily a Somali organization, and, and, and it has uh, never really espoused a global jihadist agenda until after 2006 when the U.S. overthrew the Islamic government there. So we've kind of pushed, our policy has kind of pushed this Somali resistance group deeper and deeper into the al-Qaeda mindset. Um, and that's often left out of the discourse. It's just, well, al-Shabaab is the al-Qaeda affiliate in Somalia. That's not true. Our policy is making that true. Did we push them into that uh, when we backed the Ethiopian invasion into Somalia some years back? Yeah, sure. I mean, you know, al-Qaeda could not – in fact, there's a, there's a fascinating study that was, that was actually done by U.S. military personnel at the West Point Military Academy called The Misadventures of Al-Qaeda in Somalia. And, and what that study by West Point showed was that Somalia does not have a radical Islamic tradition, that al-Qaeda could not gain a foothold as hard as they tried all through the 1990s. And, and, and so what I'm saying, Leonard, is that when we overthrew this Islamic government – we sent a message with, you know, by backing the Ethiopian invasion and by doing airstrikes and by killing, doing all these targeted killings and assassinations. We sent a message to the average Somali that the U.S. will not allow an indigenous government that actually speaks for a large number of Somalis to be in power. And it kind of pushed people, it radicalized people. So you, you would see then powerful clan leaders 
delegating you know, scores of young people to join Shabab. So now Shabab has grown up. Many of the young fighters in Shabab have grown up part of this ideological movement, which is anathema to the history of Somalia, and they've become radicalized in, in much in the same way that young people growing up in Iraq today are going to be radicalized in a way they wouldn't have been in the 1980s when it was a more secular country. They're being radicalized and pushed into the fold, and, and, and now they have martyrs to look up to, people like you know Fazul Abdullah, who was killed in June, the head of al-Qaeda in East Africa, uh, Sali Ali Nabhan, another one of the major al-Qaeda figures. I mean, these guys are their shaheeds, their martyrs, and, and, and it's because the U.S. has given them uh, has made their their uh, their propaganda true, and, now, and and it's a very powerful recruiting tool. The Ethiopian invasion was initially successful, but failed in the end. Uh, now, Kenyan forces have invaded Somalia to do the yeah. same sort of thing that Ethiopia was trying earlier. Well, no, it's not. It's not. I mean, let's remember, Ethiopia sent forty to fifty thousand uh, troops in. I mean, Kenya, we're talking about a couple thousand, maybe that are involved with counter, you know, what they say are counterterrorism operations, primarily around the, you know, the Kenya-Somalia border. Um, having said that, there are some parallels to the Ethiopian invasion. The question of whether the U.S. is supporting it or not is being hotly debated in the counterterrorism community. Some people genuinely seem not to know. Um, the U.S. does have a, um, a, a semi-secret base in Mandabay, Kenya, just along the Kenya-Somalia border that it started using to do targeted killing operations in Somalia around 2006. You say semi-secret. What does that mean? Well, semi-secret because it's known that the U.S. has a base there um, called Camp Simba. And, um, and, and it's sort of what, what they call vanilla military. It's, it's U.S. forces that are doing sort of civil affairs. They're uh, doing water purification projects. They're building houses. They're sort of doing the counterinsurgency-style uh, you know, mil- military operation. But then buried within that, that base, which is a sort of vanilla military base, you've got a, a dark ops crowd from the Joint Special Operations Command um, that uses it as what they call a lily pad to jump off from Kenya into Somalia and, and, and carry out targeted killing operations. And sometimes U.S. troops land in, in, uh, in Somalia and will pick someone up if they've survived a strike or will, uh, will go to collect DNA to confirm that it was, you know, al-Qaeda leader X or Shabab leader Y that they were trying to kill. So the, one of the questions looming is what's the U.S. involvement in this? The U.S. is very involved with training the Kenyans. But, but, we have well, to but you also we, report on a secret U.S. prison in the country, and I thought all the CIA black sites had been shut down. Right. Well, there, there is a uh, – in, in Mogadishu, um, in the basement of Somalia's National Security Agency, um, there is a prison where there are dozens, if not you know, well over 100, by, by some accounts that I heard there. And I, I talked to people who were in that prison. I talked to people who work in the prison, who are on the CIA payroll. I interviewed the uh, – the Somali intelligence official who's the liaison with the CIA about this prison. And, and the short of it, it's a long story, but the short of it, Leonard, is that the, the U.S. is interrogating um, on a fairly regular basis people who are brought into this underground prison, which is infested with bed bugs and has no ventilation and no access to lawyers or the Red Cross. Um, and they're interrogating people that they suspect to be al-Shabaab or al-Qaeda figures or people of interest. And some of those people um, were, were actually renditioned from Kenya to Somalia. They were snatched in Kenya and taken to Somalia for interrogation. Um, and a U.S. official that I, you know, that was made available to me for this, to comment on this story, acknowledged that one of the men that I was reporting on 
was in fact snatched from Kenya based on U.S. intelligence provided to the Kenyans. So it's clear that while President Obama made some grand declarations about sort of turning back the clock on some of President Bush's counterterrorism policies, it seems like, certainly in the case of the Horn of Africa, they've just sort of found a, a different way to accomplish the same thing, and it, it really boils down to semantics. We're not running the prison, we're being, but we're paying the people who run the prison. So, you know, I mean, it's, you know, it's kind of the difference between old Coke and new Coke. Well, you, you say in your article the CIA is reluctant to deal directly with Somali political leaders. So who are we right. dealing with? Are we dealing with some of the old warlords who uh, were opposed to us in the past? Yeah, I mean, one of the guys that I write about, this guy, Sheikh Indade, um, was one of the key people in sheltering the uh, the small al-Qaeda presence in uh, Somalia in the 2000s when the CIA was hunting them. And he, when I met him, he, he bragged about it. He said, I thought Osama bin Laden was a, you know, was a good Muslim. He just wanted Sharia law. I felt that these guys were on the right side of history, meaning the al-Qaeda guys. Um, now he's one of the highest-ranking military officials in the U.S.-backed Somali military, and he controls a large militia, and he's got technicals, you know, the, uh, the, the pickup trucks with uh, heavy weapons, uh, m- you know, molded to the back of them. Um, and, you know, he claims that he's working under the auspices of the Somali army, and he does have, a, he's a three-star general, um, but when I talked to his militiamen, you know, they said, any, whatever side he goes to, we're going to go to. So, you know, we're, we're working with people that used to be allies of al-Qaeda, we're working with, uh, you know, people that were, were thuggish war criminal warlords, um, and then we're also creating our own militia, apparently, um, under the uh, guise of, of, of intelligence agency to intelligence agency support. The U.S. is actually paying Somalia's intelligence, intelligence service behind the backs of the president of Somalia, who is only nominally in control. Um, and he himself is a former member of the Islamic Courts Union, the former head of it. So uh, I mean, the whole thing is a huge political mess. Well, it sounds uh, kind of like the situation in Afghanistan before the Taliban came in and conquered the country for a while. You, yeah, I mean, that's, that's not a bad comparison. Uh, you, I, we have very little time, but I want to quote something you wrote. In the 18 years since the infamous Black Hawk Down incident in Mogadishu, U.S. policy on Somalia has been marked by neglect, miscalculation, and failed attempts to use warlords to build indigenous counterterrorism capacity, many of which have backfired dramatically. So is there any chance we're going to get it right in this country? Well, I, I, I think we, we may be past the point of no return, at least for the short-term future, because the best chance we had was probably in 2006. And I, I think a, a common mistake we see traveling around the Muslim world is the U.S. gets very afraid of phrases like Islamic law or Sharia law or Islamic governments or Islamic states. And I think we have to realize that that pursuing a path that allows people to pursue their a, gov- a form of governance that is indigenous to their country is probably going to be Jeremy, the only way we can, we can have security. We have links to two of your articles on our show page at WNYC.org. Jeremy Scahill, thank you so much for talking with us again on today's underreported segment.